This is the third day of this September 2022 seven-day session. I'm going to leave behind uh, Chinese Zen master Foyan, and then move up about 300 years to Japanese Zen master Basui. And uh, we have two texts to use for this. Uh, two books.、Uh, in the past, I've usually used one called Mud and Water,、um, but today、uh, I'm going to turn back to a book many of you have heard of, The Three Pillars of Zen, <coughs> and.、Uh, And start with the biography of Basui.、Uh, you know, one of the hardest things、uh, about speaking Japanese、uh, for Westerners I've heard is that <clears throat> the、uh, every every syllable gets the same emphasis.、Uh, there's no one that's accented over the other. So、uh, we tend to say Basui, Basui. But、uh, I remember Roshi Kapil、uh, always saying "basui, basui," and I'm probably not even getting it right there. It's so hard not to accent a syllable. I'll start off here with his、uh, his introduction, where、uh, it is mostly the、uh, biographical material about basui. He says that in the year 1327, see, yeah, that was <clears throat> that was when Basui was born, 1327 to 1387. So he he lived to be 60. Uh, While、well, during his lifetime,、uh, the Aztecs established Mexico City. Meister Eckhart died, and 75 million people in Europe died of the Black Death. So this was、uh, toward the the end of the、uh, Kamakura era, which was.、Uh, A time of, of、uh, great strife,、uh, tremendous national anxiety,、um, but, but but which also Roshi writes here produced many notable religious figures, and one of them was、uh, Rinzai Zen Master Basui. The as the story goes. Basui's mother had had a vision that the child she was carrying would one day become a fiend who would slay both his parents. His mother abandoned him at birth in a field,、uh, where a family servant secretly rescued and reared him.、Uh, I think I heard somewhere that the, the mother, no doubt, arranged for the servant、uh, to. Be down there to to rescue the、uh, the baby.、Uh, 
when he was seven years old at a memorial service for his father, uh, he asked, suddenly asked the uh, officiating monk, for whom are these offerings of rice and cakes and fruit? This is, by the way, is a, a not an uncommon question. At introductory workshops, people uh, will say, wait, those flowers and you know, fruit or vegetable on the altar, uh, what, what's with that? Uh, <clears throat> and what I say, if I, if I sometimes will give an explanation, sometimes not, I'll say, yeah, they're just, uh, they're just, uh, concrete ways, physical concrete ways of, of expressing uh, respect and gratitude uh, to the Buddha, which means our own Buddha nature, honoring our own Buddha nature. It's one thing to just say it, honoring our Buddha nature in words or thoughts. It's another thing to actually arrange uh, the, these offerings on the altar. It's very, very... Um, very Zen, maybe it's very, very, very Asian, uh, to uh, concretize uh, one's uh, feelings that way. So this kid, Basui, says, uh, who are those offerings of rice and cakes and fruit for? And the, the priest said, uh, well, for your father, of course. And then young Basui said, but father has no shape or body now. So how can he eat them? And the priest said, though he has no visible body, his soul will receive these offerings. Never mind that there's no soul in Buddhism, but let's, let's let that go. If there is such a thing as a soul, the child pressed on, I must have one in my body. What is it like? To be sure, Roshi Kaplow writes, to be sure, these are not unusual questions from a thoughtful, sensitive child of seven. For Basui, however, they were only the beginning of an intense, unremitting self-inquiry which was to continue well into manhood until, in fact, he had achieved full enlightenment. Even He says even during his play with other children, he was never free of these uncertainties, these doubts as to the existence of of a soul. And this uh, concern of his with a with, uh, soul led him to think about hell. In an agony of fear, he would exclaim, how awful to be consumed by the flames of hell. Tears would well up. When he was ten, he was often awakened by brilliant flashes of light which filled his room followed by an all-enveloping darkness. Anxiously, he sought for some explanation of these weird occurrences, uh, but the replies that came were didn't help. I'll leave it to others to diagnose that those flashes of light filled by darkness. He kept questioning himself. If, after death the soul suffers the agonies of hell or enjoys the delights of paradise, what is the nature of this soul? But if there is no soul, what is it within me which this very moment is seeing and hearing? There we go. Now we get squarely into Zen's wheelhouse. 
No soul, but then, what is it that is seeing right now, hearing these words, hearing the sound of the geese? The words, uh, what is it? Who am I? His biographer, who was one of his disciples, uh, wrote that uh, Basui would often sit for hours stewing over this question uh, in such a state of self-forgetfulness that he no longer knew he had a body or a mind. They call that a kind of samadhi. Uh, On one such occasion... Basui suddenly directly realized that the substratum of all things is a viable emptiness and that there is, in essence, nothing which can be called a soul, a body, or a mind. There we go. This realization caused him to break into a deep laugh and he no longer felt himself oppressed by his body and mind. So still, he had the uh, the good sense to know that this may may not be true awakening. So he questioned a number of well-known monks, but didn't get a satisfying answer from any of them. But he told himself, at any rate, I no longer have doubts about the truth of the Dharma. I can hear Roshi Kapila saying, Kensho uh, doesn't remove our problems. It just removes uncertainty. It it uh, establishes a new basis of faith, faith confirmed, where we can work more effectively with our issues, having seen them as empty, having no roots. goes on, but his basic perplexity as to the one who sees and hears had not been dispelled. Okay, so it had been a a a light awakening, if, if any at all. And when he saw in a popular book one day, mind is host and body guest, every one of his quiescent doubts was suddenly resurrected. This is a well-known way of framing uh, this distinction between mind and body. Mind being the host and body being the guest that comes and goes. Not, Not Buddhist, really. So again, he... He was gripped with a question. I have seen that the foundation of the universe is voidness. Still, what is this something within me which can see and hear? Good question. What could it be? 
what is hearing these words right now. In spite of every effort, he couldn't rid himself of this perplexity. Nominally, Basui was a, fam- uh, was a samurai, having been born into a samurai family. I guess that made you a samurai. Uh, his biographer didn't reveal whether he actually pursued the, the duties of a samurai, uh, but uh, it seems safe to conclude that Basui's continuous search for Zen masters would have given him little opportunity and presumably as little taste for the life of a samurai. He had his head shaved at the age of 29, became a monk, but he didn't have uh, any use for the ceremonial rites of a monk or a priest, believing that a monk should live a simple life dedicated to attaining the highest truth, so as to lead others to liberation and not engage in ceremony and luxurious living, not to mention political intrigue, uh, which was something the monkhood of his day was, uh, was prone to do, getting involved in politics. On his many pilgrimages, he stubbornly refused to remain even overnight in a temple, but insisted on staying in some isolated hut high up on a hill or mountain where he would sit hour after hour doing zazen away from the distractions of the temple. To stay awake, he would often climb a tree, perch among the branches, and deeply work on his koan, his natural koan, who is the master, far into the night, oblivious to wind and rain. Yeah, think about that. Just picture that, climbing a tree, and even sometimes in wind and rain, hanging in there, questioning, questioning, Obviously, someone with an extraordinary need to go beyond that initial awakening, have a deeper experience, a need to resolve his question, really. He wouldn't have had the thought of enlightenment in his mind. There's no room for it. So consumed was he by the, by the questioning, who is the master? Who am I? What is this? In the the morning, with almost no sleep or food, he would go to the temple or monastery for doksan with the master. In the course of his uh, spiritual journeys, Basui eventually met the master uh, who would help him bring his mind's mind's eye completely open. It was uh, Koho Zenji. Zenji uh, is an honorific title, meaning uh, 
great master. Koho. The other masters from whom Basui had uh, been training had all been sank- had all sanctioned his enlightenment, but Koho uh, didn't didn't give him a stamp of approval. He sensed Basui's keen, sensitive mind and the strength and purity of his yearning for truth. But he did. Koho did invite him to remain. Still, though, uh, Basui declined to stay in the temple and took a solitary hut in the nearby hills and for the next month came every day to see Koho. One day, Koho, sensing the readiness of Basui's mind, asked him, Tell me, what is Joshu's mood? Basui started to reply, Mountains and rivers, grass and trees are equally moved. Koho stopped him with, Don't use your mind. All at once, Basui felt as though he had, quote, lost his life root, like a barrel whose bottom had been smashed open. Sweat poured from every, every pore of his body, and when he left Koho's room, he was in such a daze that he bumped his head several times along the walls, trying to find the outer gate of the temple. When he got to his hut in the hills, he wept for hours. The tears overflowed, quote, pouring down his face like rain. The following evening, Basui came to tell Koho what had happened. Hardly had he opened his mouth when Koho, who had ever despaired, who had despaired of ever finding a true successor among his monks, declared, My Dharma will not vanish. All may now be happy. My Dharma will not disappear. Well, he also, Koho also would have known that uh, how can the Dharma disappear? This is the Dharma. This. So Koho gave him Dharma transmission, gave him the name Basui. That's, I guess, where he got his name. It means high above average. Basui stayed with him for another couple months, uh, receiving his guidance. Um, But he wished to mature his realization through Dharma combat with other masters. So he left Koho and continued to live an isolated life in forests, hills, and mountains not far from the temples of famous masters. When he wasn't engaging them in Dharma combat, he would carry on his zazen for hours at a time. Again, the, the, the extraordinary faith. You have to say it is faith after such a 
profound realization to want, need, to want, need to go on doing zazen for hours at a time. The clearer the realization, the more, more intolerable it is uh, to, um, to be complacent, to stop short of even deeper realization. Wherever he stayed, whatever hut outside a temple he stayed, um, the uh, monks would discover his whereabouts and uh, seek out his guidance. But he still felt himself deficient in the spiritual strength necessary to lead others to liberation. So he resisted their efforts to make him their teacher. When their entreaties became too much, he would pick up his meager belongings and vanish in the night. But aside from the pressure from the monks, uh, he deliberately uh, curtailed his stay in any one place so as not to become attached to it. That's in the the early Buddhist the early Buddhist tradition of monks never staying, being prohibited uh, from staying in any one place uh, two nights in a row to, uh, to avoid attachments. So now Basui was 50 years old. He built himself a hut deep in a mountain. Word spread through the nearby village of the presence in the mountain of a bodhisattva and seekers begin again, literally, to beat a path to his hut. But now his enlightenment had ripened, and he felt himself capable of leading others to emancipation. And he no longer turned away these monks, but willingly accepted all who came. Soon their numbers grew, and the governor of the province offered to donate land for a monastery and for his followers to build it, Basui agreed to become its Roshi. The, uh, the temple grew to more than a thousand monks, and, and not just monks, and lay practitioners, Basui was a rigid disciplinarian. He he announced 33 rules uh, for the behavior of the monks. And uh, the first one, this is always, this is quite remarkable. The very first one prohibited uh, alcohol, drinking alcohol in any form. In that too, he really distinguished himself from uh, the tendencies among uh, Japanese monks and even roshis of uh, drinking just to be honest about this when I uh, put up at a temple in Japan 
just I was just there for three or four days. Just wanted to check the place out. Um, I realized a little late, like a day into it, that I hadn't brought a gift for the Roshi. Uh, this is not either of these outstanding teachers many of you have heard about. Uh, it wasn't Tangan Roshi. It wasn't uh, uh, Harada Shoto Roshi at uh, Sogenji. Uh, and uh, I went to the uh, the head monk and I said, oh, I forgot to bring a gift. And uh, and he said, well, it's too late now, um, in a sour way. And um, he, I said, well, okay, better late than never, maybe. And uh, he said, sure. And I said, uh, can you suggest something? And uh, he said, well, do you want to give him something he really wants? Sure. Get him a fifth of whiskey. I said, uh-uh. He said, well, get him a six-pack of beer then. <laughs> Which I did. I never met him. I hadn't earned that. I spent all my time there with the uh, with the head monk. It was a very small monastery. It had had been once had glory days in the Middle Ages, but uh, there were only uh, oh, there were like four or five monks there. It was a a sorry lot of monks. Back to our text. Just before he passed away at the age of 60, Basui sat up in the lotus posture and to those gathered around him said, Don't be misled. Look directly. What is this? He repeated this loudly and then calmly died. So Basui was one of these very fortunate Zen practitioners who had a natural koan that bit into him to the bones. Uh, few people uh, these days have that. Few people ever had that. Uh, some of the great masters, yes, but few, uh, other, few of the rest of us ever had that. So then we take a koan if we should want to. We take a koan and we work with it until it bites us, bites deeply into us, which can take years. But they're all, they all essentially lead the same place. What is Mu? What is this? Who am I? In, uh, in Japan and China, another one would be, uh, what was my, what's my original face? So uh, we just have to make uh, some allowances here and 
with uh, Basui using this term, who is the master. Uh, it's, it's kind of weird to Western ears. Uh, it was, it's very much a, kind of a, a product of medieval culture and Japanese medieval culture, a master and servant. Um, we know what he's talking about when he suggests that question. So first, his, his, uh, his Dharma talk here in the Three Pillars of Zen. If you would free yourself of the sufferings of samsara... By the way, I just learned yesterday in uh, my Taisho prep that uh, birth and death is samsara. I mean, that's a, 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 that's a tr- samsara is a translation. It is the Indian translation of birth and death, or vice versa. Um, so many references in Zen texts to birth and death. Make it samsara. The wheel of life and death, suffering. If you would free yourself of the sufferings of samsara, you must learn the direct way to become a Buddha. All right, become a Buddha means become enlightened. This way is no other than the realization of your own mind. Now, what is this mind? It is the true nature, this is mind with a capital M, by the way, it is the true nature of all sentient beings, that which existed before our parents were born and before our own birth, and which presently exists, unchangeable and eternal. So it is called one's face before one's parents were born. One's original face, we could say. This mind, our true nature, our essential nature, our essential mind, is intrinsically pure. When we are born, it is not newly created. When we die, it does not perish. It has no distinction of male or female, nor has it any coloration of good or bad. It can't be compared with anything, so it is called Buddha nature. Yet countless thoughts issue from this self-nature as waves arise in the ocean or as images are reflected in a mirror. Let me just comment. uh, Buddha nature, as Yasutani points out elsewhere in this book, Buddha nature just means that uh, everything has the nature to become Buddha, become enlightened. We are all endowed with this potential, this nature, uh, to awaken to this, our, our, our original enlightenment. Buddha nature is really no nature, no fixed nature. Uh, as Hakuin says, our, our true self is no self. That's what, that's what gives us our freedom to change. We're not stuck with a self. We can become free.
He goes on, to realize your own mind, you must first of all look into the source from which thoughts flow. This is not something that I've heard in contemporary times doing, but let's just give him his say here. Sleeping and working, standing and sitting, profoundly ask yourself, what is my own mind? With an intense yearning to resolve this question. Or, what is Mu? What is this? What am I? Who am I? It's all the same. This is called training, or practice, or desire for truth, or thirst for realization. What is termed zazen is no more than looking into one's own mind. And of course, zazen is much more than sitting. Even though za means sitting, sitting zen, but more broadly, Anytime uh, we are uh, not dwelling in our thoughts, and especially if we're questioning. It is better to search your own mind devotedly than to read and recite innumerable sutras and dharani every day for countless years. So that was a very common practice. I don't know how common, but that was a common enough practice in Basui's time. In not, not sitting but reciting sutras, dharani, chanting. Such endeavors, he says, which are but formalities, produce some merit, but this merit expires. And again, you must experience the suffering of the three evil paths. These are the three lowest of the six realms of unenlightened existence. The realm starting from the bottom, the realm of hell, and then moving up the realm of hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits, and then the third lowest one is the realm of animals. Because searching one's own mind leads ultimately to enlightenment, this practice is a prerequisite to becoming a Buddha, becoming enlightened. No matter whether you have committed either the ten evil deeds or violated the five precepts, if you turn back your mind and enlighten yourself, you are a Buddha instantly. But do do not commit transgressions and expect to be saved by enlightenment from the effects of your own actions. For neither enlightenment nor a Buddha nor a patriarch can save a person who deluding himself, goes down evil ways. Imagine a child sleeping next to its parents and dreaming it is being beaten or is painfully sick. The parents can't help the child no matter how much it suffers, for no one can enter the dreaming mind of another. If the child could awaken itself, it could be freed of this suffering automatically. In the same way, one who realizes that her own mind is Buddha frees herself instantly from the sufferings arising from ignorance of the law of ceaseless change of birth and death. 
If a Buddha could prevent it, would he allow even one sentient being to fall into hell? Without self-realization, one cannot understand such things as these. What kind of master is it that this very moment sees colors with the eyes and hears voices with the ears, that now raises the hands and moves the feet, We know these are functions of our own mind, but no one knows precisely how they are performed. It may be asserted that behind these actions there is no entity, yet it is obvious they are being performed spontaneously. Conversely, it may be maintained that these are the acts of some entity. Still, the entity is invisible. If one regards this question as unfathomable, all attempts to reason out an answer will cease and one will be at a loss to know what to do. In this promising state, deepen and deepen the yearning, tirelessly, to the extreme. When the profound questioning penetrates to the very bottom and that bottom is broken open, Not the slightest doubt will remain that your own mind is itself Buddha, the void universe. There will be no anxiety about life or death and no truth to search for. Not the slightest doubt will remain that your own mind is itself Buddha. Not the slightest doubt will remain uh, that of your about your own enlightened nature. This is one of the few ways I've ever found to answer someone who asks, uh, "What what what is awakening?" Uh, it's 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 awakening to the fact that we are all equally endowed with this self-nature, this Buddha nature. No one less than anyone else. Talk about um, faith. People sometimes uh, thank me, people who've been, who've worked together a long time and they haven't gotten to where they want to and they thank me for my Patience? It's not patience. I know who you are. I know that you lack nothing, and it's only a matter of time. It doesn't really take patience. Just maybe just, you know, patient, waiting, but not matter of uh, um, putting up with a student for many years because they haven't gotten through their koan. You don't need to for me to be convinced of your true nature.
In a dream, you may stray and lose your way home. You ask, ask someone to show you how to return, or you pray to God or Buddhas to help you, but still you can't get home. But once you rouse yourself from your dream state, you find that you are in your own bed and realize that the only way you could have gotten home was to awaken yourself. This kind of spiritual awakening is called returning to the origin or rebirth in paradise. It is the kind of inner realization that can be achieved with some training. Virtually all who like Zazen and make an effort in practice whether laymen or monks can experience this experience to this degree. But even such uh, limited awakening cannot be attained except through the practice of Zazen. Well, it's not true. Uh, strictly, It's virtually necessary to do Zazen, but every once in a while, in rare cases, people have spontaneous awakenings. But don't count on that. You would be making a serious error, however, were you to assume that this was true enlightenment in which there is no doubt about the nature of reality. You would be like someone who, having found copper, gives up the desire for gold. It's a stern warning uh, to anyone who has had a glimpse, gotten through his koan, Don't settle for copper. Upon such realization, question yourself even more intensely in this way. So he's, of course, he's speaking from his own experience. My body is like a phantom, like bubbles on a stream. In other words, in evanescent in flux, my mind looking into itself is as formless as empty space, yet somewhere within, sounds are perceived. Who is hearing? Should you question yourself in this way with profound absorption, never slackening the intensity of your effort, your rational mind eventually will exhaust itself and only questioning at the deepest level will remain. Finally, you will lose awareness of your own body. See how, how different that is from uh, this much broad, vaunted mindfulness is, mind, body awareness, body scanning. You will lose awareness of your own body. Your long-held conceptions and notions will perish, after absolute questioning, in the same way that every drop of water vanishes from a tub broken open at the bottom, and perfect enlightenment will follow like flowers suddenly blooming on withered trees. We'll uh, pick up from here tomorrow and stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 